Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. David Weiss is with me here today. David, how are you? I'm good, Nick. How are you doing today? Thanks for uh, inviting me over and making delicious coffee. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Not slurp in the background as we do this. So <laughs> so if you don't mind, you want to tell the listeners just a little bit about like your experience coming up through EMS and how you kind of found your way to this type of sure. work? Yeah. So I started EMS on my 16th birthday Excellent. back, <laughs> back in... Um, Back home in New York, and I joined like the junior corps of the ambulance, and I started running there all throughout uh, the rest of high school. I came up to Vermont, uh, went to St. Mike's, where I was on St. Mike's Rescue for four years. I got my EMT, my advanced EMT, and was the training officer for two of those years. Um, really, just really fell in love with medicine. Um, and after school, I worked as a tech in the emergency department, as a scribe in the emergency department. I worked in the emergency communication center, which is kind of the bridge between. Uh, EMS and the ER. And then I decided after a year or two of that, that I was going to go back to nursing school. Um, did a quick one year, second bachelor's program down in Florida, came right back up to Vermont. Florida was not for me um, <laughs> as soon as I was finished with that. And I did a emergency medicine nursing residency at the UVM Medical Center. And since then, I've been a nurse in the ER there for going on seven years now, six or seven years and recently just joined up with the UVM HealthNet Critical Transport team as one of their critical care flight nurses. And kind of on the side, I do this disaster medicine stuff with uh, Urban Search and Rescue. Yeah, that's super cool journey. And I, I think it's always entertaining. I can't remember if we took our EMT together or just our A. I don't know if you remember. but I, that, yeah, that was a long time it was ago. Long, it was like yeah. over 10 years ago. And, uh, and I was thinking about that a lot recently because I think it's so entertaining because you, me, and Olivia Snyder all were in that class. And we kind of had our bifurcations where we like left and like went on these like life journeys where Olivia was traveling and nursing and going all over the country, doing all kinds of things like that. And, you know, you do, you know, you had like the urban search and rescue stuff and you went and did the comm center work and then you went and got your nursing license. And I left and did my uh, time in the fire service. And now we're kind of all back together as the health net transport team. Yeah. We caught the EMS bug and That's here right. we are. Yeah. We're still here. It's just really, it's just really entertaining to me that we like go have these journeys and then we kind of all come back to the same place and we're like all older and we've grown and we've had these experiences and, you know, Livy and I were just talking the other day about how it's cool that, you know, when I struggle with the hospital stuff, I mean, she's been doing that. I mean, for ever since we left our EMT class and said goodbye to each other at the time, like now she's had those experiences about the, how the hospital works and the ICUs and the residency programs, like what you had. And I went out and did the dirt, dirty street medicine and <laughs> yeah. decontaminated airways and put tubes in and like did that stuff. And then we go to an ICU and there's 15 drips and I can't pronounce any of them. She's like, don't worry, Nick, it's okay. Breathe. Yeah. And I'm like, thank you. That's what makes our team so, so incredibly special having both the nurses and the medics on together and kind of having the same scope is pretty cool. Being able to do it all. Yeah. Um, but definitely everyone has their own little niche. And I think that's, that's really important. So disaster medicine is a really hot topic. Um, when I went down to EMS world, they had a member of the FDNY EMS rescue task force down there um, talking about this type of work. And it was just wild. Some of the stuff they do. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about kind of like the, like the origins of USAR and kind of like, what is it designed to do? Like, why does USAR exist? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So USAR um, kind of officially came in as a part of FEMA um, through legislation back in 1989. And the first teams really spun up uh, around 1991. And their goal is to respond to these disasters and kind of assist the 
the agency in the areas where these disasters happen with some more technical skills. Um, we're also able to provide 14 days worth of a deployment of kind of daily work. Um, and so that's really important because not all of the, I mean, I think we all know that through the fire service and EMS service that um, no matter where you are in the country, things could be different county by county or even town by town, whether um, you've got a paid full-time uh, fire department who is grade A on technical rescue and confined space stuff, or um, disasters can also happen in these kind of more rural communities that might all be volunteer based and might not have um, kind of the lineup to really deal with these bigger disasters. So the USAR teams, there's 28 of them spread across, there's 28 FEMA USAR teams, which are kind of the bigger teams throughout the country. Um, and then um, almost every state has their own version of state USAR teams, often called SUSAR, so state urban search and rescue teams. Um, and so a lot of the times that these teams are highlighted are at um, different disasters throughout history. So yeah. we can think of the Oklahoma City bombings. And that was one of the first um, like true large activations of these teams. And what they were able to provide is um, kind of specialty collapse rescue training, um, trench training, um, confined space. And they were able to use different search and technical search methods, canines, to help kind of go through the rubble piles. Um, kind of fast forwarding to 9-11 and the World Trade Centers, um, the New York teams were down there working for quite a while and teams from um, all across the country came to assist as well. Again, because while that's going on, there's still other emergencies happening in, yeah. um, in that location. So yeah, um, a bomb went off in a federal building and everyone wants to rush there and help, but there are still pa patients out there that are having chest pain that are completely unrelated to the incident, or there are still fires happening in your city. So um, this kind of takes the earnest of having the individual kind of local agencies perform these huge tasks um, while also continuing to run their daily operations. We're there to supplement um, and help them. Yeah. And I, I can just share from when I was a, a junior cadet, which is similar to what you were doing on the EMS side. You know, it was when Hurricane Irene happened. I was working in southern Vermont on a small volunteer fire department down there. And this was something we had never seen before. I mean, this was huge, huge flooding. I mean, road like roads were shut down. I remember at one point there was a giant full-size propane tank floating down the river oh in gosh. the rapids, like striking bridges. And we're a volunteer fire department. I mean, these are, these are guys that work in construction and mow lawns and, you know, work in banks and are lawyers. Like, these are not... These are not like, uh, this isn't the Houston fire department. This is like, we're not designed to handle that. And I remember, um, it was the only time in my volunteer career ever that we worked a 24 hour shift literally wow. on the ladder. Cause we were the only ladder company in Southern Vermont, short of Manchester, Vermont. There's no other ladder companies. So my ladder company was doing those pickoffs off of roofs and off of, we're setting the truck up, moving people off of a roof over water onto the truck, dropping them off to the sheriff's department, loading it up and going to the next town and the next town and the next town. Wow. And what I remember, an experience. Yeah. And I remember specifically, like, we didn't have any swift water training. We didn't have any gear. Like at one point we were set, we set up the ladder truck and the, the water shifted and was running underneath the truck where the outriggers were. Mm -hmm. And we were all wearing turnout gear. And I remember standing at the back of the truck with a ladder belt on with like a big carabiner. And the person who's in charge of me at the time was like, just clip yourself into the truck so that you don't get 
washed away. I'm up to my chest in river water oh in turnout gear, which knowing what I know now, I'm like, <laughs> what is happening? Well, like, like you said, like we were not prepared for that. Mm-hmm. The only reason like that went okay is because they brought in at the time Colchester Technical Rescue, which came down with boats and made those rescues and helped us with decisions about how to, how to take care of those patients and, uh, and those rescues. But like you said, I mean, some of the places that these teams go, like they're just not set up to do that type of work. They don't have boat, like to have that trailer show up, have trained divers show up and just unload the boats, put the motor on and like actually affect a rescue within less than an hour is so cool. I mean, that's, that's a cool system. Yeah. And I mean, so we're talking about just the Swiftwater part of things, which is I think a huge asset, especially in Vermont. Um, and it's weird that people don't, I mean, being a landlocked state, people don't always assume that, oh, like oh, Vermont has a really awesome Swiftwater team and yeah. we do. Yeah. I mean, again, we get deployed um, to different states uh, yearly um, to go out and help and assist. So um, that's a really cool aspect of, of what we do. So we'll do Swiftwater rescues. We'll do um, collapse and trench rescues. Um, anytime that there's like a large fire in a, in a structure, whether it's um, still standing or not, um, we can go and assist with the fire investigators. We'll go in if it's unstable and build up different shoring pieces to make sure that it is stable for the folks to be able to get in or to rebuild if contractors come in later. Um, so having all these different kind of facets is pretty cool. Um, and then we've got our canine search team as well, which is pretty cool. We've got um, live find dogs currently, and we just believe we're just starting to train up a, a human remains dog as well. And those dogs are separately deployable from our entire agency. So if, um, I don't know, let's say the Massachusetts task force goes out on a big deployment and they need another dog or two, um, they can request just our canine handlers and the canine to go and kind of be an adjunct to them as well. So USTAR is cool because there's so many different parts to it. And a lot of people um, specialize in one one area. Like um, if uh, on the FEMA teams, if you are on the rescue team, that is what you are a rescuer. You are a rock breaker. You can do ropes. You can do swift water stuff. Um, but on a smaller team like Vermont's, we don't have the ability or the or the um, kind of the deep enough ranks in the bench to just say, okay, I'm only going to be doing medical. I'm only going to be doing search. Yeah. Um, so a lot of us do different things. We have multiple members that are cross-trained in medical and like disaster medicine and also collapse rescue or confined space or swift water. So we kind of all do a little bit of everything, um, which kind of adds to the fun of the team. So I know, oh, I'm not just like playing like nurse or medic for the whole time. Yeah. Like I'm going to be able to get on the boat, do some rescues. Um, or I'm going to be able to get into that structure, assist with building the shoring, um, stuff like that. And that's kind of a pretty unique part about Vermont's system. Yeah. I remember one of my old business partners was really into the technical rescue. He's just a guru in this whole world. He worked down in the DC area doing a bunch of busy work down there. And, and, uh, one of the things he always mentioned to me is the best type of high angle rescuer you would have is a paramedic. And I was like, Oh, I, I'm not really like that. I'm, I'm the medicine guy. You guys go do your thing. You load them up or bring them over, drop them off. I'll do whatever. And he was saying like, be, the reason being is imagine you have someone, you know, three, 400 feet down a cliff. And the only thing you can do initially is get a person to them. You may not be able to get them up right away. You may not be able to set that system up fast enough to actually remove them. Mm-hmm. He's like, by having someone who has a background like you, who's a nurse or a paramedic or a flight nurse, 
and some rope rescue training, you could actually send that person down with some medical equipment and they can render a lot of the aid that you're talking about right at the patient, even before they get the stokes or the litter or the hall system or those other things down the line. And I guess I never thought about that, that like the most versatile rescuer is, is generally someone that has some medical background, has some operational understanding and technical skills to actually do what they need to do at the same time. Yeah. And there's, I'm glad you brought that up because there's been a recent paradigm shift. I mean, just like just like fire and EMS were constantly evolving. Um, we always learn from previous disasters. So what we learned, um, in, uh, the world trade center and Haiti and, um, a few of the other kind of recent collapses is that starting treatment in the hole increases survivorship by like 85%. So kind of the old adage was, all right, rescue, you stay up by the ambulance and yeah. you'll be there. And then we'll go down and grab these people and rip them out of the, the pile as soon as we can. And then you'll start your treatment and you'll go away from the scene and go off to like your base of operations or your medical tent or your hospital or whatever you're operating out of. But recently there's been this big shift to starting treatment early on in the hole, in that confined space and training up these medical rescuers to be confined space certified and collapse certified um, so that we can start to bring in supplies and start assessing and treating as soon as possible. Um, and sometimes that means that as soon as you make patient contact, you might be down in that area for up to 12 hours until a relief can come in um, while, and you can start assessing and treating while the rescue folks work on a plan to um, kind of distangle them or um, free them from their entrapment. So it's interesting. And something I didn't really think about until I took this like week long disaster medicine class down in North Carolina was you're not going to have all of your equipment. Right. Like at the USAR cache, we've got med bags um, that are similar to like your first in bag that everyone has on their ambulances. Um, we've got a monitor. We've got some kind of accessory trauma bags or like downrange first aid kits. But if you have to crawl 500 feet through twists and turns in confined space to get to the patient, you can't fit that entire bag. You can't fit a whole oxygen tank like you're very limited on what you can bring in. Um, and so thinking about performing advanced interventions, starting IVs, starting vasopressors, giving um, calcium and stuff like that to treat crush injuries without a monitor on is something that like the EMS part of me loves. I'm like, this is great. Back to my their roots of really good physical assessment and like figuring out different pathophysiologies. And then the kind of critical care nurse in me is like, oh my God, I, I can't give a medicine if I don't have an adequate blood pressure. What, what, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, so it's thinking about medicine in a different way. Um, and it's not being afraid to get in there and start providing high level care in the hole with the patient. Um, and again, like I said, outcomes are improving every, with every disaster because we have had this huge paradigm shift. Yeah. And we've done a couple episodes in the past about like tactical medicine and wilderness medicine. And it kind of all falls under this like umbrella of austere medicine where, yep. and uh, I remember going to a training uh, down in, I think it was Orlando. And I was able to meet with the head medical director of the army Rangers who wrote all the austere medic medicine oh, uh, nice. protocols who, who wrote like on the deployed medicine blog and that website and stuff. And one of the things he, he said is he came up with this definition of austere medicine that I think is really true and rings true in all these conditions is he found that 
when people think about austere medicine, they always think about like wilderness, like a mountain. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of cases like what you just talked about, crawling through a tunnel or a subway station where it def- it fits the definition of austere medicine, even though you're not in the wilderness, you're applying the same concepts. And so his definition is it's a patient that you know needs to be somewhere else and you're with them longer than you want. So yeah. think of someone who needs the OR and you can't get them to the OR and you're stuck with them. Like essentially that's austere medicine. Like you don't have what you need to do the optimal treatment. So you're forced to do something else. And that could be a lack of equipment. It could be lack of evacuation. It could be that they're entrapped. Um, and I think it's, it's cool what you're talking about. I mean, I remember doing a tactical medicine program once with a rural service and we kind of went over those same concepts of, you know, providing care using a radial pulse as a metric or a respiratory status by feeling the chest, you know, those types of things. And, you know, skin color, condition, mental status, making inferences about the medical physiology based on like some basic physical assessments. Mm -hmm. So we get ready to do the scenario. They put all their tactical gear on. We turn around and they have, you know, the backboard, the vacuum splints, the life pack monitor. (laughs) I'm like, my dude, we're going to have to be a little bit more mobile than that. Yeah, a little bit lighter, a little bit more mobile. Yeah. So like, you know, I just think as you're telling that, I I was thinking of crawling through, you know, a confined space tunnel, like dragging the life pack behind you. I mean, they're not designed to do that. No. You know and, and, and there's also no be. guarantee that you're going to get any of that equipment back. Yeah. And that's another thing that you have to think about in these kind of disaster situations. Like if your search and rescue team has a single monitor, is the best place for that 40 feet down in a hole with you? Or is it back at the med tent where, God forbid, something happens to one of the other rescuers or someone else on scene that that can be used for that as well? And then also for your patient once evacuated. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this is resource management of what you have. Like I've got one monitor for my entire team of 35 people that I'm deployed with and I'm responsible for their well-being as well as any of the victims. So kind of how do you split up equipment? When do you split up equipment? Can you stage equipment? Like, oh, I can get my big bag 100 feet down the tunnel and then from there I can go modular and bring different things down. Um, so there's a lot of that too, which I think is is really interesting. Yeah, and, and I think of like, I've told this story before about like how you know, some of the people in the military view ketamine in terms of their protocols. And I think, you know, one of the interesting stories I remember when I was talking to this um, doctor down in Orlando is he was saying he went to Fort Sam Houston where they do all the special operations medicine and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And and they were talking about ketamine administration. And when we, when you and I in our critical care worlds administer ketamine, it's very specific, right? So like if we're giving it for pain control, it's like 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram over a certain amount of time, right? 15, yep. 10, 15 minutes. So it's very specific. With full monitoring and, uh, and tidal CO2. And, Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right. Checking mental size. Well, you know, if we give it for um, induction, you know, it's a, it's a different dose. If we give it for dissociation, depending on the route, it's a different dose. And it's all weight-based. It's very specific to the point where, you know, each milligram is accounted for and does something different to the body. Mm-hmm. So this doctor goes down to Sam Houston. He's talking to all these, these guys who have a role of, you know, providing some type of infantry responsibilities on top of medicine. They're not just going down there working in an ER. Like they're, they're out in the field doing things other than medicine. And the doc's like explaining how ketamine's dosed and the weight and the calculations and how to like estimate body. And they're like, nope, we're not doing that. This is too much. We can't. We're, we're, I'm not going to try to, you know, provide suppression support with my rifle and calculate someone's body weight. And yeah. then they're like, no. no time for that. So he's, you know, the soldiers are like, hey, you need to give us just a standard treatment algorithm. And he's like, no, it will. It's very, you know, medicine's very specific. Like this is one dose. This is another. Do- and they're like, no. So what they came up with is basically 
They're going to give you an IO because it's quicker and easier to hit than an IV, right? You can get that in way more successfully and mm-hmm. way quicker than anything you would possibly do with an IV. Yep. You're going to give 100 milligrams of ketamine and they're going to go unconscious, but maintain the respiratory drive. And then every time they move or wake up or have pain, you give another 50. And that's, that's their treatment algorithm. And I think that's great. I mean, if you think about the, like the Thailand cave rescues, yeah. similar thing. How much do those kids weigh? Here's a standard dose. And yeah. uh, if they start to wake up, redose them on our swim out. Like, yeah. And it's because the safety profile is relatively large, you know, and in that setting for Fort Sam Houston, the, the patient population is relatively similar. You're looking at people who are like, you know, 60 to 70 kilos up to, you know, 150 kilos. And that's really the parameters that you're looking at. There's not, you're not dealing with pediatrics, really. You're yeah. not dealing with really older folks, you know, and like you're dealing with people that are fit, have good. Yeah. Good baseline physiologies. Yeah. And guess what? If they, if they don't breathe or stop breathing, they're going to get a crike. Like that's quicker and faster than intubation. Like they, like battlefield medicine does not include laryngoscope. Exactly. It's heavy. And you, there's so many blades you have to bring and they're not using video scopes. They're putting in supraglottic airways or crikes. And that's the extent of what they're doing. Nasal pharyngeal airways. And so I kind of think of that when you're talking about disaster medicine, it's like, maybe you want this very specific critical care dose and monitoring and titration to effect, but maybe, you know, giving some pain management, recognizing that it's not optimal, but it's operationally efficient and provides some relief while you're making a move is more effective than, you know, don't let perfect get in the way of good. Exactly. And I think that that's, that's really interesting that you said that because there's a lot of this, well, like, oh, I can like, oh, I'm critical care nurse. I can get down there and start pressers and do this and that. But what's really important to that person right then when yeah. we get there, right? Is yeah. it is it getting pain medication? Sure. Great. I can do that. But a lot of it is back to these basics that we learn in EMT class, like scene safety, which I guess if if we're there, that means that the scene isn't safe. Um, but kind of getting back to those roots of how can I make this as safe as I can be for myself and the patient and making sure that they don't become hypothermic, right? So like a blanket is a huge, um, I would rather have a blanket and like a space blanket and maybe like a little foam pad. I would rather, I would take that over a vial of ketamine in the hole any day, yeah. right? That's going to provide um, some comfort to your patient. It's going to prevent, um, concrete is a huge heat sink, right? So you're just going to lose heat as fast as possible. Um, so if you can start, if you can stop that and start retaining some heat um, and kind of optimizing them physiologically, that's going to be the best thing. Um, thinking of using, um, I know we here in EMS, right? You know, once you make patient contact, they can't eat, they can't drink, no nothing. Well, this person might've been trapped for 72 hours. Yeah. It's okay if they have a little bit of water, yeah. right? And so do you bring a water bottle and a rag with you, have them clean off their face, have them rinse out their mouth before they drink anything. Um, and then allow them to drink a little bit. Oral rehydration goes a really long way. I think we all know it's much better if they're able to tolerate it than IVs. Um, and it's a lot easier to give someone a water bottle and have them drink it than it is to get a light up, start an IV in this awkward position that um, the patient won't be comfortable and I won't be comfortable in, that I'll never be able to really tape well enough to survive our yeah. <laughs> long drag out of there. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's really interesting to, um, to take all this, like what you really want to do and like, yeah. oh, I know if I had this patient and I had full access to them, I would do a full rapid trauma assessment. Well, guess what? You can see their hand and that's it. Yes. And so like you said, like, what can I find? What can I assess from just a hand? You can tell the relative age. You can feel a pulse if you can get to their wrist. 
you can pop an SpO2 on, see if they're oxygenating okay. Um, you can assess mental status, right? You can yell out, sir, ma'am, can you hear me? Yeah. And if they can wiggle their hand or give you a thumbs up, I know that someone's responsive enough to follow a command. Yeah. So I just did a mental status exam on a patient who I can't see. I can only see their forearm. That's crazy. And that's not something that you would think about in the back of an ambulance or in a brightly lit trauma bay where you have access to all these different things, but it's the best you got at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think that's a great point. I remember getting into a, not a, not a, just like a back and forth with one of the trauma surgeons at one of the hospitals we went to, because we, this guy got thrown off a motorcycle at 75 miles an hour and basically broke every bone on the left side of his body and hit his head really hard and passed out and had a concussion and all these other things. And so we picked him up on the helicopter and I put a pelvic binder on him and I brought him into the emergency department and the doctor's like, well, why is this pelvic binder on there? And I was like, well, he got thrown off a motorcycle unrestrained at 75 miles an hour, has like long bone fractures, including like his femur, which is a relatively large bone. And he's like, well, did you assess his pelvis? And I was like, well, I didn't because he's in catastrophic pain. And I put the pelvic binder on before we loaded him. And he's like, well, that's not an indication is, you know, you can't, you can't place a pelvic binder just based off mechanism and signs of shock. And I was like, well, here's the other thing to remember is I'm not in a hospital room. If he develops shock, I can't just get up and go put a pelvic binder on. Like I, once he's in the life blanket in the sleeping bag we use and he's loaded in the aircraft, I literally cannot reach his hips. So if he develops shock and deteriorates that life, potentially life-saving intervention, I can't apply that once we put him in the helicopter. Whatever needs to be done has to be done before we load him mm -hmm. because you don't have access when you're flying. And so, you know, like you said, sometimes it, it, we're not making the most optimal medical decision for medical reasons in a vacuum. Sometimes it's medical and operations where you have to think about, okay, I have all these things I want to do now, but what might I need once they start dragging him? Because once you put him in the stokes and you bundle him up and you lash him in, you're not going to be able to reach in there and put a pelvic binder on. Exactly. He's isolated from you, you know, mm -hmm. and then the rescue teams, you know, God love them. They're they're ready to go. I mean, they're ready to haul. They're not, they're not waiting for you to reassess and cut no the one's ever called them gentle. Yes. <laughs> no, they want to get that person out. So, you know, I think that's really interesting. Like the blend of medicine and operational pieces. Yeah. And then I think that a really cool part of disaster medicine too, is that it's not over when you get them out of the hole, right? You can pop, pop that pelvic binder on, you can make them warm. You can pop an IV in, you get them off that pile. That's great. If there's an appropriate EMS agency standing by, but if you think like we go to hurricane deployments down south, that entire city might not have power, yeah. which means that my closest hospital physically might be 10 miles away, let's say. But are they able to accept a patient who is critical and needs an OR or has the potential to need an OR? So then it's thinking about, well, how am I going to get this? Where is my closest like actual facility that's accepting patients? Yeah. And how am I going to get them there? Because the roads are still flooded. So does that mean that we take an ambulance ride to pre-staged boat and then cross a flooded highway with the boat and then get back into another ambulance. Um, these logistical things really start to, to add up. And there's a lot to think about when you're down there with the patient. Um, and again, like your optimal training is like, oh, I want to do all these specific things and I got to do this and this and this. But you know what? It might just be easiest to put a seat collar on or pop a tourniquet on that thing that's bleeding and move and you can always reassess and alter your treatment course later when there's where it's light where there's you have more hands where there's more equipment um so not being afraid to 
change your treatment plans based on where you are, I think is really important too. Yeah, and it's it's very similar to helicopter medicine. I've always like, I, I know when I gave it a little note, I kind of talked about like how my mind worked, where I started sorting these patients into, in terms of their treatment about what, ha- what has to happen now versus what has to happen but can happen later, and then what's optional. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you go to a patient that's entrapped in a pile of concrete, if they're hemorrhaging from an artery, you have to treat that now. You cannot delay that. There's yep. no choice. Like whether it's cutting through the the rock and getting in there and putting a tourniquet on or putting your hand in, whatever you need to do, you have to stop it now. You have no discretionary choice. Pain control should happen, but it can happen later. Like it's not, it's not yep. an immediate need. You wouldn't want to give pain control before you controlled an arterial bleed. You know, and then something like antibiotics is going to ultimately help their outcome, but that's not going to make or break survival. And you would not, you wouldn't want to delay them in the hole for an hour while you're waiting to get antibiotics administered. You know, so like, I think, you know, thinking through that process of what do you have to do now versus what has to happen, but can happen later, like when you're out of the hole versus Mm -hmm. we'll get to it if we get to it. Yeah. And I I wonder if part of me is a little bit corrupted from working in the ER and working yeah. in this critical care medicine environment where, oh, I know, all oh, this patients, they have a traumatic amputation. Great, they're going to need antibiotics. And like, that's in my brain. But I'm like, yeah, you're right. They don't need this in the hole right now. They need a tourniquet and they need pain control and airway support and get them out of here. And so but in the back of my mind, I'm always like, oh, I didn't, maybe I wasn't able to do everything that I had planned for, or I have all these things planned in my head. And then you have to realize that's not, it's simply not going to happen or you don't have enough time for that. So you're right. Prioritization is really important. And again, that prioritization is going to change based on your current environment, the environment that you're extricating the patient to, and also how long you're going to be down there for, right? If a patient's going to be trapped for, even after you make um, patient contact, sometimes folks are down there for 24 hours, if not longer, while the rescue team figures out a way to get them out or um, kind of breaches a new hole to get them out. Um, so it really is all about what they need right now. And yeah, it's not perfect. And would I love them to get antibiotics? Yes. But also that's not my immediate problem. And you're right. That's not going to kill them in the time frame that I'm going to be with them and not to turf that to the hospital, but that's something that they can certainly get once they're out in the hospital. Yeah, for sure. You know, and that, that was like, you know, something I learned from one of my buddies who was in the military is like this concept of antibiotics is like, Anytime they get injured in the field, they're going to get antibiotics at some point, like just because it's dirty, like everything's dirty, your clothing's dirty, the environment's dirty, you know, but giving them an oral antibiotic before you move them off the battlefield, it's great if it's feasible, but also waiting an hour and administering an antibiotic IV, you're going to get great effect. Like it's not, it's not like we're waiting days to administer this stuff, you know, And, and I thought it was just interesting, this concept of like kind of teamwork behind operationally planning and providing good medical care. Even on the fire service, I remember a lot of calls where you might have a patient who's in a dangerous environment or a bad situation or a trauma, right? You know, and there's a lot of things you want to do to provide the perfect medicine, but sometimes the fire lieutenant's kind of like breathing down your neck being like, Hey, you ready to move? you ready to move? you ready to move? And maybe you're not going to get like a serial EKG. Maybe that's like the mm-hmm. best thing for the yeah. patient, but maybe in that setting, getting them up off the cold pavement is going to be more beneficial to them than delaying to take more diagnostics. You know, person with alert and oriented times four mental status, like delaying to get a blood sugar. Does that make the most sense in the hole? Or do we know, can we infer that they're mentating? So their blood sugar is probably not catastrophic at least mm-hmm. at a minimum. Yeah. And I mean, let's take that, that um, diabetic example, for instance, we, we do this one training evolution 
where there's a, it's simulated of a car into a house and the house kind of collapsed on top of the car, but the patient's awake, but they're altered. Yeah. And you're like, oh man, like, are they altered because they just drove into a house? Are they drunk? Are they high? Are, or is there something else going on? And they're mumbling something about sugar and maybe yeah. diabetes. And you're yeah. like, okay, I can't really get to them fully. I can't get a, a finger stick, but is this something that I can take the chance and assume, all right, if they're really low and I give them something sugary, that's going to help fix my problem. Conversely, if they're blood sugar, if they happen to be in DKA and that's why they're altered, is a Rice Krispie treat, is that really going to like matter that much once your blood sugar is already a thousand or a thousand two hundred, right? So like operationally, it makes more sense to just give the sugar or give the dextrose however you can, whether it's a granola bar or, I mean, I always have snacks on me. So here's a Hershey's Kiss or a Starburst, something like that. And is that perfect medicine? No. But is it realistic medicine for what's going on? Yes. And it's all about, do your, does the benefit of this right now outweigh the risk? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's the same how paramedics approach a heart attack. It's like, you got chest pain? Okay. Uh, do you have any bleeding anywhere? Any GI stuff? No. Any allergic, you know, stuff to aspirin? No. Just give it. Like yeah. if they're not having a heart attack, okay, you got some aspirin. Like I took aspirin yesterday for a headache. Yeah, like it's exactly. fine. Like it's not a big deal. You know, so I think that's a great point about like, what are some interventions that have a high yield, low risk and are operationally feasible and then doing the minimum to provide some comfort and some stabilization and then like prioritize that movement towards definitive care, like not delaying, you know, don't lose the forest through the trees type of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point. So if people are interested in getting involved with USAR, if they're listening to this episode and like, oh man, that's a cat's pajamas. I want to get in on that. Like, how would you suggest they start to go about that? Yeah. So I think the, the first step, just like with applying for any new job is kind of a quick self-evaluation. And you can say, what can I bring to this team and what can I learn from this team? Um, so if you're out there and you love ropes or you're a Boy Scout and you know 50 different types of knots and you can practice a little bit and kind of get up to snuff with that, or you're in the fire service um, and you've got some, some rope stuff, some structural collapse stuff, if you are really con seriously considering something like applying to one of these task forces, um, I would say like a quick online search for wherever you're living is kind of a good way to start. Um, if you go to the FEMA website, um, USAR falls under FEMA jurisdiction. Um, there's links to all the different states and all the different state teams for all the bigger teams. And then if you go online to the state urban search and rescue Alliance website, um, that has all of the smaller teams. Um, and you'll be able to find links to everything through there. Um, a quick search for Vermont urban search and rescue or Vermont task force one will get you to where you need to go. Um, it's on the state website. We're technically under the division of um, fire safety, which is under Vermont emergency management. Um, urban search and rescue is this weird thing. It's, there's no real great spot for it in like normal matrices or matrices. Um, but that's where you can find it. Um, we've got, we're on Facebook. There's, um, we've got an Instagram. Um, our dog handlers have their own Instagram as well. If you're into the doggos and you love some search and rescue, hide and seek stuff. Um, so there's all different ways to get out there. Um, and then just being really open to trying new things. I mean, I came on primarily as a medical specialist because um, that was my background. And it was, I had picked up my equipment on like a Tuesday and then we have team trainings once a month on Wednesday and it happened to be the next day. And my program manager was like, Hey, come on over and like, come on tomorrow. And if you're free and we'll get you, get you kind of up to snuff. And, uh, so fast forward 24 hours and all of a sudden I'm 
cutting a railroad tie with a petrogen torch. Yeah. Have you ever done that before? No. Was it awesome? <laughs> Absolutely. But knowing that I was doing so in a safe environment yeah. where everyone around me is the best of the best in their field. Um, so, I mean, I was being taught some kind of technical rescue stuff by folks that have been doing this for 20 years, for 30 years that are chiefs on their department, um, but are one of the guys um, and one of like the, the crew members on USAR. So it's really cool to see. Um, and some folks love water rescues. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to someone about joining the other day and they were like, listen, I'll get into a, a confined space. I'll dig through rubble. I'll set up a rope system. I'm not getting into any water. No, nope. like that's, no, that's thanks. not for me. And I was like, great. We always need shore support or folks conversely really love water rescues. That can be their jam. And if we get called for structural collapse, maybe they don't come or they say, okay, I can come. I'm probably not going to be a team leader, yeah. but can I assist in other ways? Can I be doing some of the grunt work yeah, or some yeah. of the operational stuff? Um, so if you're interested in any of that, I would reach out, um, apply. There's, um, there's usually always openings for different things. So find out what would suit you best. Um, if you're really into tech and stuff like that, and you want to get into the technical search side of things, we fly drones. We have, um, they sometimes use like ultrasound and sonar. Um, we've got these fancy and really expensive like 360 cameras, um, some snake cameras as well. So you can get into the search side. If you're like, oh, I love breaking rocks and setting up these systems. Oh, okay, well, then you're more of a rescue kind of person. Or if you're like, I don't really like to get my hands super dirty, but I like logistics and management of fleet operations and making sure that the equipment's kept up to date. Great. You can join the logistics team or the planning team. Um, if you're really into hazmat and you have hazmat certs, congratulations, you've just become our new hazmat guy. Excellent. Right? Yes. Um, so I think that's a really cool thing is that there's something for everyone that's interested in it. And it really is just diving in headfirst, being open to learning new things. And it's all kind of about putting in what you get out. If you want to go take another certification class, they'll support you. You'll go take it and you come back. Congrats. You're, um, you're now licensed in, uh, or you're certified in confined space rescue or collapse rescue or something like that. Yeah. So just get out there, ask, start asking questions, um, and, and apply if you're really thinking about it. And that's kind of the cool thing about this whole system is you don't need to be a world renowned rock climbing rope rescuer to start. Exactly. You just need to be interested and have something to offer the team and be willing to explore the new options and they'll put you through whatever you want. I mean, most of the people I know that are on USAR, they came in with some basic fundamental skill sets and now they've been sent to all these large classes all over the country and the world to become who they are today. And that's done through USAR. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, like I said, there's always room to grow and branch out. I mean, never in a million years did I think I'd ever be in a partially collapsed um, building that had been on fire 12 hours before um, building supports and like shoring it up. Like when I joined USAR, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm the med guy. Like yep. I'll treat you if you get hurt. I'll treat yeah. a victim if they get hurt. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is actually the coolest thing in the world. Oh and yeah, for sure. So now I got some basic carpentry skills and I can go in with them and help shore up a building. Um, or I was taking that disaster medicine class and I found myself in a little really confined space trying to assess a, a patient. And I was like, huh. This is not what I thought it was, but this is pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Well, David, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, stay safe out there. You too. Thank you. Thank you.